Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. In today's episode, bio member Kevin McGruder talks with Mary Emma Graham about her book, The House Where My Soul Lives, The Life of Margaret Walker, published by Oxford University Press in December 2022. This interview was recorded on September 18th via Zoom. Professor Mary Emma Graham, it's so good to meet you and welcome to this bio podcast. Thank you for having me. And you begin by telling us how you got introduced to Margaret Walker and how that led to you becoming her biographer. That's a very good question. I think it's a generational question. I'm a member of that generation who had models and icons and who knew of writers, not knew them personally, but knew of people who you would want to emulate. In other words, if you needed to think about somebody whose work you respected, whose career was illustrative, then you had a list. Part of the work of this project is recovery, recovery and uncovering the things we didn't know about Walker. But she was that most famous person that nobody knew, apparently, which I learned later uh, when Nikki Giovanni used that term when she talked to me about why I would want to do this book and when I asked her, you know, what the most important things were. So she was one of the women that really a lot of us knew through her poetry, primarily growing up in, for me, the Black South, Georgia specifically, and being exposed as much as possible to these Black legacies. So she was an iconic figure. There was no question about it. And I realized as my career unfolded and I began to run into her, I could see that there was so much more there. And that. And, and when you say run into her, do you mean literally she, or figuratively? Literally, because mm-hmm. Walker was in that retiring and on the other side of her academic or teaching career. And then that gave her an opportunity to do many, many more public engagement kinds of activities. And I'm using that word intentionally because it's very common today, but was not at all common then. And yet she was doing it. So she's this precursor. So and this is the 1980s, maybe? This is the 1970s. 70s. No, earlier, okay. 1970s, <laughs> when she had that Phyllis Wheatley Festival. Right. So Walker was doing things and bringing people together, and you had an opportunity if you knew somebody who knew somebody, you might be in her presence, in her aura. And that was what it was for me. If I knew somebody who knew somebody, and I did, I could get to go to a meeting. And I was well before my graduate school thinking about what I'm going to do. It was just out of interest because it's a name you knew. It was in the South. Somebody said, come to this conference. It might be good for you. And I would encounter her. And so many people, as I said, again, of my generation would recognize the importance of this and be guided by somebody to go. Uh, So I met her on her own turf, which is what I later discovered, what she really enjoyed was bringing people to Mississippi. 
and I'd never been. It was not a place that you would ordinarily want to go at that moment, at that time, for a lot of reasons. But I guess the other important juncture is that I went to Mississippi to work. My family and I took a job. Ole Miss was where I worked. And Walker was there. She was in Mississippi. She'd retired. And she made an, an effort, concerted effort to reach out to me. And I went to Mississippi and I went to visit Margaret Walker and I took my family, my children, and we were frequent residents in her home because for her, that was where you saw her fully engaged. She had a life outside of the university. It extended from the university. So I got to know her first, but each thing I got to know raised questions about what I didn't know. Walker had wanted to write a memoir, as many writers do, but she just couldn't pull it off. And I was the person interviewing her constantly, asking her questions, curious, wanted to know how she and Langston Hughes got along. I mean, I had lots of interviews with her while she was living. And at some point it was, I guess you're going to have to finish my story. For listeners who might not be familiar with Margaret Walker, can you give a, I know it's going to be difficult give a brief summary of her life because there's so many connections that she makes with people who are much more well-known than her. But this biography, I think to the reader, will explain why we need to know more about her. 1915 to 1998. So this is a 20th century woman, clearly. And so if you think about those dates, 1915 to 1998, you're talking about the new Negro Renaissance you're talking about what I call the Chicago Renaissance, which is an extension of that Harlem period that people identify. We're talking about the 40s and the rise of the, the uh, civil rights movement and the activism that was in the South. We're talking about the Black arts movement. So we've got these literary movements that are going on. And so Walker is surfacing and resurfacing over and over again over the course of that time and is identified with all of the people in each of those periods. Mm -hmm. So if I take, say, the New Negro or Harlem Renaissance, there's Langston Hughes. And they were good friends. And they were good friends throughout his life. Mm -hmm. So Walker knew everybody. Ruby D. Ossie Davis good friends. That world was a network. Writers, artists, musicians, uh, editors. Du Bois published her first poem in Crisis Magazine. So there is this network, a Black literary network, a Black intellectual network that she was part of. But by the time the 70s emerge, she's on sort of the tail end and, you know, we'll talk about that. Some of the things that began to happen to her pushed her further away from the limelight. But that but beginning portion, you go into quite a bit of detail first about her family and that background and particularly her mother. Well, her mother and father, you really explain why they you don't say it explicitly. But I think for the reader, you want us to understand what's motivating her by understanding who they were. I use the word sort of new Negro because people recognize that term. And so this is the generation of the, the family was very much inspired by that idea. That is, this is a family of educated people. They're in the South. They're not in New York. They're not in D.C. They're in the South. Father's a minister. A mother's a musician. A mother's a very public minded person. A father's a very public minded person. They are raising four children. When you think about Walker, the fact that 
she was in a sense entitled. I want to be very careful about those kinds of words, not privileged, but entitled. She had access, high school education, college education, goes off to Northwestern. She wanted to be a poet. She wanted to be a writer. She had permission to call herself a writer before she had published because she was writing and working and her parents saw that as the talent that she was going to be. She might have not been the first to go to Northwestern, but she certainly was among those people and was prevented from doing certain things, as was the case often when you integrated or went to a white institution. So Walker had opportunity to develop the natural talents that she had and became first a poet, the first national award that a Black writer had been ever given for my people, published in 42, but that poem began circulating in the 30s, late 30s. And can you talk about why that poem becomes the, almost the defining work for her? It was. Her signature poem, as she called it, she was trained at Northwestern. And so this modernist movement was giving writers the freedom to sort of shift the traditional structures of poetry, of American poetry. So Walker was using the free verse of the time, but she she twisted the idea of poetry that is so so increasingly complex that you have to have people to explain it to you, and therefore it is not as accessible. Walker took that framing, uh, opening up poetry to more people, and then she decided to use moments and experiences from Black life to talk about, the sounds of Black life. The, you can sing the poem. It's rhythmic in every way. But she called it For My People. And each stanza introduces a phase or stage of the Black experience. So it was a comfortable space for people to be. And when they read it, it's like they could see themselves, they could hear themselves, they could hear the voice. And yet it was very fine, highly evolved poetry. And, and that's the 1930s. Um, it was published in 37. But when she did the book for my people, she used, of course, that is the title, the title poem for the title. And it won the Yale uh, Younger Poets Award. And then it began circulating. And I say to people, Walker was probably the first writer to go on tour, a paid professional tour. Her plan was, if I can go to Southern institutions, specifically HBCUs, I'll take this job. So it was pretty much a full year tour where she traveled throughout the South, reading that poem, meeting with students. And this is the early 40s. And the job that she would take would be what? She was teaching, but she actually took a leave from her uh, her teaching job to be uh, a poet with the uh, National Artists and Art Incorporation, which was the sponsor of national tours for writers to go and read at colleges. So she had a Northern tour, which of course was mainly white institutions, smaller colleges, New York and New England. And then she had her Southern tour, almost all exclusively HBCUs. And then she started with that. Mm -hmm. Spelman, Fort Valley College. And I'm going to call out these colleges <laughs> because I'm still asking people to look for photographs, look for mm -hmm. documentation of her visit to you in the 40s because she talks about it extensively in her journals. She wrote everything down, which is which saved me and gave me such a great access to her because she was writing as she was experiencing this. So the tour opened her up to many, many audiences. Particularly during the first half of the book, you give us a very good idea of the tension between this public career 
and her desire to have a private life and a family and children. And this is before people are talking about having it all. Right, exactly. But she does want all of that and she has to do some things to get it. (laughs) It was a period where you had to make a choice and Walker did not feel that she needed to make that choice. She wanted a family, she wanted children, she wanted to be a writer. And because she had started her career early, I think in her mind, and again, I'm putting myself back in that space where I had to think about what was it like for her to start a career as a poet? She didn't start as a married woman with children. She was a poet first. Now, many people did that in the 19th century. Women had lives as writers before they married, and then they settled into the married life. So she's following an earlier model, a more Victorian model, so to speak. And Nina Bain reminds us that, you know, women writers in the 19th century were religion. They were not unknown. They are unknown mostly now, but they weren't unknown then. So Walker was first a poet, first an artist, first a writer, first known by the public. But that was a lonely life. A Black woman from the South in the 1930s claiming herself to be a poet, an award-winning poet, which she was. And I think that loneliness and the desire to be in in companionship. And if you think about the women writers of the period, the examples that she had, and and we have to think about this, Zernil Hurston, what happened to her? She was a single woman, a woman who divorced. She married early, she divorced, and she was severely criticized. That was not lost on people and certainly wasn't lost on Walker. She had come, her mother had come from Florida. Her mother knew Zernil Hurston. So if you were a writer at that time and you saw that the best known writer that people have is being criticized severely publicly by men in many instances, Walker did not want to walk that path. I want to be married and have a family. I can have it all. You're right. Before we thought we could do that, Walker saw herself as settling down. I think she was also not that comfortable living up north. She was comfortable in the South. She was a woman who loved the South. New Orleans, of course, is where she grew up, born in Birmingham, but New Orleans is where she grew up. And it was a rich culture, a family that was very nurturing, and there were very talented members of her family. We don't talk much about that. Her brother uh, was a brilliant bassist. He was able to go on tour after he retired from his job. He's, you know, one of those New Orleans musicians. We know New Orleans for its music. Her sister was a concert pianist. So this is a talented family. And their mother opened one of the first independent music schools in New Orleans. I don't want to get in trouble with that. So, you know, your listeners will have to give me the documentation I need. Did her mother open the first Black music studio in New Orleans. She probably did not, but she did have an early studio. She also had the orchestra at a New Orleans university, now Dillard University, but she had an orchestra there. She trained young people in those different instruments. So we've got a musical family, a talented family, a father who's a minister, a well-trained minister with an advanced degree. So we have a sort of a Black middle-class culture whose expectations for their children were pretty high. And Walker met those expectations. So there's nothing unusual in that sense. I want to make that point. People somehow think that, yes, she was a child prodigy in a sense, but she was also someone who was expected to do well. And she did. And she does marry. She uh, marries a serviceman. Yes. Ernst James Alexander. Yeah. 
you're quite clear in that there's challenges they have to face as she's has this dual career, but also um, he's not of the same social classes. And that, and that too is a situation that was fairly common during that time. Many women would go to school, become, and I, I'm from the South and I like to make people aware that we have a distinction between being a school teacher and an educator. So if you teach elementary school or high school, you are a school teacher. If you're a principal or you teach college, then you're an educator. Walker was in that teacher culture. So she was interested in doing what it is she knew would give her the career that she wanted. But it was also a comment that women were more educated than the men they would choose to marry. There was the GI Bill. He had gone to the war. He was not formally educated, not finished high school, but she fell in love. This was the man she wanted to marry. And so I like to think of it as a love story that had a beautiful ending because it had a rough beginning. And in part, it was because Walker was always self-aware. Her journals tell us that she was constantly trying to, how can I make this work? There were efforts of separation in instances of, I can't make it work, but I must make it work. The tension is there. So this is a, a life filled with different kinds of tensions, but there was this one as well. And ultimately, when she decided to settle in Jackson, Mississippi, they were separated. And he was not going to come to, to, to Mississippi. He was from North Carolina where they had married, where the two children were born. She was not going to, she was prepared. Her parents were going to help her out. Kids were staying with the parents while she started her teaching career at Jackson State. Inevitably, it was, let me give this one more shot. And he joined her. And that's where that marriage was transformed, both of them working on it. And he was the strongest supporter that she could have ever had. And it's interesting, her career is transformed too at Jackson State because she gets her PhD when she's in her 40s. In her late 40s, exactly. She goes back to Iowa and writes three volumes. The dissertation is three volumes. She turned it right around into a best-selling novel. And it was the predecessor today. We know this is the predecessor to what we call the neo-slave narrative. She called it a folk novel. That was the way she framed it because she wanted it to represent as much as she could possibly do voices of the people, the stories of the people, because it was a fictionalized version of the story her grandmother had told her. Uh, the names and the characters come out of her family, but she was raised by her grandmother. Her parents worked. This is another situation that's very common. Parents worked. Grandmother lives with Annie. So you're raised by your grandmother and she's the first child. So and can you talk about Jubilee? It was a novel that gives you those three stages of that 19th century, which is slavery, the Civil War, and then Reconstruction. And that's the, the framing of the book. And we follow the character Vyrie through those three stages. Her intent, of course, was to continue that story, to have a, a sequel to it. That sequel is not fully finished, but it is in her papers. And so as are many other stories that didn't get finished, because that was also the price she paid for the choices that she made. She right. could not get all of the work finished in a timely way. And so it was left unpublished, but she continued to work on it. Every now and again, she'd go back to it and she would do a chapter. She would develop a sketch of a character. 
And we hope to see that work, which is what I was hoping that the biography would do was inspire another generation of people to see some of this work and try to get it out there because it's not fully finished, but we have, we've done that before. You know, Ralph Ellison's work was able to be published posthumously. I think we can do that, some of that for Walker, but I can't do it all, knowing what I want to. So my work was to try to get people to hear and see, remember her once again and realize, oh my goodness, we can't let this go. A couple of decades after Jubilee, when Roots comes out, that's a pivotal point for her for several reasons. Can you talk about that challenge? So I would say that we have these two halves of Walker's life. So that first half, where the successes were, she's a known writer, the novel does really, really well. She's the darling of the Black media, and she has a very strong relationship with them. And then Roots comes out 10 years after Jubilee. The book was filled with controversy, but Walker was the first to sue Alex Haley. Other people did. Other people won their suits, but she was the first. And Walker did not have that kind of corporate apparatus behind her that could really push this. And also, as she explains, that she understood the cost that this would take. And even though people advised her against it because they knew that it was going to be very costly in terms of reputation, that was anticipated. I would say she was very principled in the way she operated in the world. If you tell a story, and of course she cared deeply about this story because it was her family's story. So for somebody to lift sections of it was unacceptable. And and I think you know that she noted, I believe it was 150 Exactly. Places. Eight places. So it's not a few. <laughs> it was not a few. It was more than anybody else claimed. William Cotton's The African, less than half that number. He won his suit. But Walker was the first to put it out there. When she sued, of course, she lost. And that was the kind of reputational backsliding that one does not recover from. And her publisher did not support her. That's right. Did not support her. Not only did they not support her, when the suit was finished, they wanted to celebrate and use that as a marketing ploy. The woman who sued Alex Haley on the cover to sell a new edition of Jubilee, and she refused to allow that as well. And she spoke publicly about it. There is a document where she explains what her position was. It was later published privately. But Walker had her truth. She spoke to audiences about it. She tried to defend herself. But this was a position, she couldn't reset the clock on this one. There was just no way to do it because people had been given roots as a book and as a miniseries. It started a new era of television, the miniseries. It was the most successful. There was no way to beat that much public support and opinion and the corporate system, both the film industry and the publishing industry that Alex Haley had behind him. And what her friends were saying to her is that you can't beat this. Right is right. You know the truth, but you can't beat this and you can only suffer. Now, her friends were correct, but she wouldn't stop. But history has confirmed. History her confirmed. Principles, as you know, she was in correct. The book. But that was, again, the second half of her life, beginning of the second half of her life. Mm-hmm. Alex Haley was dead by the time this was confirmed. Right. That could do her no good. And in fact, she accepted the fact that 
there was no need to gloat. She wouldn't talk to the media about that. She had one close friend as a journalist she could confide in, but she didn't want to make an issue out of, look, folks, I told the truth. She didn't celebrate that which tells me that it was really about the principle. It was not about fame or anger or angry black woman or any of that stuff. It was, this is not the thing you do. This is a, a podcast for biographers, aspiring biographers, or people who like reading biographies. It seemed like you had a, a treasure trove in her journals, but I also suspect they presented challenges in your writing in terms of deciding what parts to use, how much to use, how did you get access to them? And then what kind of decisions did you have to make as you were creating this narrative? So I started with, again, that relationship with Walker when I worked at Mississippi and I got a chance to interview her extensively. So I was there as she was making that transfer of the journals to the Margaret Walker Center. She wanted her work to be there. She wanted to create an archive for recording and documenting the history of the Black South. And she had done that. And so that institute was in 69 was her baby, but she wanted it to house her collection. So I was there when that transfer was being made and it was uh, understood that I would have access once it went from her home it was archived and then later digitized, organized, of course, and processed, that I would be able to read. And I spent many years, which is why the book took a while, reading every single page and creating my own journal of her journals. So I have a notebook with all the notes and the quotes and the type sections and the photocopied because I was there before it was digitized. What I had at the very beginning was Margaret Walker's voice. And she began those journals when? When she was 11 or 12 years old. Uh, girls were given journals in part as a uh, as a socialization process. Don't say everything you think, write it down in your journal, which is what the parents told her, because she did love to talk. She did love to insert herself. And we knew Margaret Walker that way as an adult. She inserted herself into conversation. She had lots to say. And so the journal was her her best friend. And so she started early. And then as she matured, and because she didn't have, I think, a kind of public platform, particularly the second half of her life, the journal became the platform. Long, long statements about political commentary. The journals gave me the other part of her that I didn't get in interviews. My challenge, as you say, was where did my voice fit in telling the story? I like to say that I had three voices in the book because... I also realized I needed other people's opinions. And so lots of interviews with family and friends over the years. Many of those people uh, are dead. So her voice through the journals, my interpretive voice in the timeline, and then interviews from other people commenting, uh, giving, I think, the reader a chance to see how this complex person who tried to put all those parts of herself together deeply thoughtful, extraordinarily well-read, classically trained. And the book has the marvelous photographs of the people who are at those conferences, and she's right in the middle. Walker was careful to document everything. She was aware of the need to create archives. She did a television program with a host of women, and again, those images are in the book. So those photographers helped me tell the story. They were part of that third voice, as it were. She lived a full life. And 
engaged at all times. So yes, I want I wanted readers to see enough of her to understand why she made the choices that she did. There is so much else to be done. There are books to be written. There are essays to be published. There are unfinished manuscripts that can be finished. I hope younger scholars think about that. The treasure trove, as you say, is there. It's well kept. It's intact at the Margaret Walker Center at Jackson State. It is a perfect project to write a proposal for, to get funding from NEH and elsewhere, if you are so inclined. And I would encourage it. Well, thank you so much, Mary Emma Graham. The book is The House Where My Soul Lives, The Life of Margaret Walker. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was bio member Kevin McRuder in conversation with Mary Emma Graham, talking about her book, The House Where My Soul Lives, The Life of Margaret Walker. It was published by Oxford University Press in December 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on September 18, 2023. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week.